I'm going to start today um, almost from sort of a launching pad of where we began last week with that story of the Buddha and how he had he chose to leave the palace in order to connect with the wisdom that is suffering. So, where is my book? I have 7,000 books today. We, so the Buddha leaves the palace <laughs> and goes out into the world and becomes an aesthetic and is said to really devote himself to um, not taking in food, like was said to have eaten one grain of rice every day, and almost cultivated a process in which his body was suffering, right? So that's what happened. And that was the path laid out um, by the teachers, by the yogis, right, that were um, teaching him, that were instructing him about how this might be possible. And then this happens. So, at the age of 29, Prince Siddhartha, later known as the Buddha, renounced his material life. Born and raised to a life of abundance, Siddhartha left his family palace to follow the path of the aesthetic, practicing severe self-discipline and, as the traditional stories tell us, limiting his diet to one grain of rice per day. Six years later, all of this changed. <laughs> We've been doing it wrong for 30 years. <laughs> Meditating on the banks of a river one day, Siddhartha overheard a musician teaching a student how to tune a sitar. Tighten the strings too much, the teacher said, and it will cause them to snap. Leave them too loose, however, and they will cease to make a sound. I'm going to repeat that. Tighten the strings too much and it will cause them to snap. Leave them too loose and they will cease to make a sound. Hearing this, Siddhartha had a revelation. He'd experienced the extremes of both sensual indulgence and abstention, but neither had led to any kind of lasting peace. In that moment, he committed to walking a more moderate path one that occupied a middle ground between luxury and self-denial. In Buddhist teachings, this became known as the middle way. The middle way is highly relevant to a more trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, uh, where do I want to? I want to end this here, I think. And the reason is, is that in a more trauma-sensitive mindfulness practice, which I think we should all be practicing right now because um, I don't know one person who hasn't lost something or experienced some sort of suffering in the last couple of years, let alone their lives, where we practice in what's known as the window of tolerance, where we're not practicing in the extremes of self-indulgence, right? Or harming ourselves and beating ourselves up, but that we keep our practice inside the window of tolerance because that's where transformation is possible. And the ancient teachings tell us this, right? So this got me to thinking.
friends. I had this experience the other day where uh, a friend of mine actually was talking about how um, I even I don't even want to say this, but I feel like it's useful because it's something that can happen in spiritual communities. <laughs> a friend of mine was talking about how. Um, it's all a dream and <laughs> this isn't real. And so what does anything matter? And almost using it as a way to be harmful, right? To cause harm. This idea that this reality that we're living in isn't real and that um, we're connected to oneness and something larger, right? And the way it was spoken was without a lot of um, intention, right? or understanding of the paradox that we are living in, which is that we have this body and this mind and that we're also something larger than that, right? That we're connected to a greater mystery, that we're connected to God, if you will, that we're connected to the universe, if you will. And yet we're still in this life, living this life, and we have choices um, and opportunities to be compassionate and connected and loving and experience the relational aspects of love. And I say this because um, I think it can get kind of confusing. And we're getting back to the middle way in a second, but I think it can get kind of confusing when we start to learn the idea that we are not this body-mind, that that's not all we are, that we are indeed something larger and more connected that we are loving awareness, right? I would say the way that I like to describe it is that we are in fact love, that that is what we are in our essence, right? So when that when we realize that, it can get very confusing and be like, well, what does it matter what I do down here in this body, right? It can sort of like move towards um, nihilism, right? Which is the opposite of, um, I think it's called eternalism, where this is all that there is. Um, so what's interesting about this paradox, I mean, we are living a paradox in and of itself where we have this body mind and that we're also have something that is called spirit, right? And so how do we handle that? What do we do? So the middle way in yoga and in Buddhism have a lot of instructions, but I want to read this little bit to you first. So. The Buddha chose this middle way, and it says, this is Jack Kornfield um, writing, and then it's the Buddha talking. So, later as the Buddha taught, he was challenged by other yogis and aesthetics for having given up austerity. You eat beautiful food that your followers put in your bowl each morning, and wear a robe in which you cover yourself from the cold. While we eat a few grains of rice a day and lie without robes on beds of nails, what kind of teacher and yogi are you? You are soft, weak, and indulgent. The Buddha answered these challenges, too, with a lion's roar. I, too, have slept on nails. I've stood with my eyes open to the sun in the hot sands of the Ganges. I've eaten so little food that you couldn't feel one fingernail with the amount I ate each day. Whatever aesthetic practices under the sun human beings have done, I too have done. Through them all, I've learned that fighting against oneself 
through such practices is not the way. Instead, the Buddha discovered what he called the middle way, a way not based on an aversion to the world, nor on attachment, but a way based on inclusion and compassion. Inclusion and compassion sounds a lot like being cool with this human experience that we're in, right? The middle way rests at the center of all things, the one great seat in the center of the world. On this seat, the Buddha opened his eyes to see clearly and opened his heart to embrace all. Through this, he completed the process of enlightenment. This was when he discovered the middle way. This is important detail. It is said that it was at that moment, right? That then he was like, had like that pathway open to pure freedom and pure enlightenment when he stopped operating in the extremes, right? Of like self-indulgence or beating oneself up and suffering on purpose, right? Um, hmm. Where is it? Where did I leave off? Oh, yes. Through this, he completed the process of his enlightenment. He declared, I have seen what there is to be seen and known what there is to be known in order to free myself completely from all illusion and suffering. So then it's like, okay, well, how do we do this? This sounds great. What's the middle way, right? And I think that this is such the interesting part. And this goes back to this idea of like, how do we handle the paradox of, um, having this body mind and then also being something larger. How do we handle that being the case, right? And in both yoga and in Buddhism, there are the eightfold paths. And all of them (laughs) have to do with what it is we do with this body mind in this experience that we're having right now. It's seeing and how it can lend itself towards seeing more clearly the nature of reality, right? So in um, Buddhism, these are the these are the eight paths, and then I'll read the ones in yoga. But I just think it's really interesting to notice um, what they have in common and what they don't have in common. So the first one is right understanding, which is um, right view, right perception, and seeing clearly, right? So in the way that I would speak of it and our community speaks of it, it would be that saying yes to all that is, right? It's um, being able to be in the yesness of what is, <laughs> even if we don't necessarily like it, but to be able to see it clearly. So that's right view, right understanding. Um, the next one is right intention, which is the resolve to follow the path. Right, to keep practicing, to stay on the path, to have that be our intention. And if we just claim that everything is a dream and this reality doesn't matter, that isn't practice, friends. That isn't practice. Um, the next one is right speech. Right speech. And so it's being in right action. They kind of go together. So it's what we say and what we do in this world matters. This is the Buddha saying your energy matters, right? The words that you use, the things that you do in this life, your actions matter. And I think that that's a key um, understanding, especially in the context in which we live right now, where it can seem and appear and feel like it doesn't, right? Um, 
right? Livelihood. So this makes it seem like uh, what we're doing for work. And yes, that is true. (laughs) But it also is like, are we creating habits in our lives that are non-harming? And so I would say, and this is my interpretation, so take it or leave it, but I would say that right livelihood also means would mean uncovering the habits that are no longer working for us and replacing them with habits that are non-harming not only for the planet, for one another, but also for ourselves. Right? It's that intention to love ourselves a little bit better. Um, right effort, to focus our efforts on the task at hand, getting free, being non-harming, having right speech, right, right action, and then right mindfulness. I love this one, which is awareness of the body and the mind from the soul perspective, from your loving awareness, from witness consciousness, which is this beautiful moment when all of it, right, mindfulness is like when all of it can be intertwined and entangled and we don't have to move it into some sort of polarity, right, into some sort of binary where it's this, not this. Make sense? And then the last one is right concentration is that we dedicate ourselves to practice, that we dedicate ourselves to practice. And um, these can be broken up into different groups, but Um, the Buddha was once asked, is there a self? Is there a self? Like, is there a me that is separate from everything else? Interesting question, right? And do you know what the Buddha did? (laughs) He was quiet. He didn't answer. He didn't answer. And he later said that if he had answered yes, that that would have been affirming eternalism. And that if he had answered no, that that would have been affirming nihilism. And that the middle way is silence, is that willingness to be in the mystery, to be in the entanglement of all of it coexisting at once. Right? Um, I was listening to a Ram Das talk the other day, and um, he told this beautiful story that I had forgotten about Ram. And Ram is God, right? Let's just call Ram God. And Ram has a beautiful partner named um, Sita, um, and a brother named Lakshma, who's like us, right? Who's human who has that feeling of separateness that might cause one to ask a question like, is there a self? And they go out into the woods together and Ram's first and then Sita and then the brother. And the thing about, because (laughs) the thing that is kind of funny is that Ram's brother can't see him all the time because he feels separate in the same way that we feel separate from God sometimes, from spirit, from the universe, where we might feel alone, where we forget our connectedness. That's another way to say it. And so they're walking, and um, 
Ram can see Sita because Sita is the divine mother. And the divine mother (laughs) is all of this. Everything in creation is Ma, is an expression of the divine mother, is the play, the Leela, the play. And so Lakshma can see Sita, but not Ram. But at some point as they're walking, Sita, in a great act of generosity, steps out of the way of the path so that Lakshma can see Ram. Right? And um, the way that Ram Das describes this, and I think this is so beautiful, is that we can't see our connection with all that is without the help of the Divine Mother stepping out of the way and saying, see, you're whole. So it made me cry. You have everything you need. There's no part that is missing. Look, there it is. There's your connection with spirit. Right? And that's another paradox because it seems like because we are spirit embodied, (laughs) that we would just be able to feel that connection without help, but in fact, we need help. We need each other's help. We need the help of the Dharma, of the teachings. We need the help of the practice, right? We use, have all of these tools, right, to help us to be able to see more clearly and also to be in right speech and right action and right livelihood in this world. And we need the wisdom that comes from the direct experience of living. And all of that, like in this story, helps us to be in connection with the Divine Mother so that sometimes through an act of grace, an act of great generosity, she might just step out of the way and say, see, it's all here. You were never separate after all. So the um, here, book number 742. So <laughs> the eight paths of yoga are a little bit different. And we'll talk about why in a second. They're much, much older, just FYI. Um, but these would have been more of, at that time, the path of, that was more severe, right, that the Buddha was following. So the eight limbs of yoga are yama, niyama, Um, which are the relationship with ourself and the relationship with the world. So notice that right away is that it's not like only just relationship with a capital S self, the part of us that is spirit. It's acknowledging the fact that we are embodied and that we engage with this world and that our energy matters. Yeah. So it's not in denial of that. And then asana is number three, which we're going to do in a minute. And pranayama, we're totally going to do too, which is breath control is um, the fourth step on the path. And then pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal. And this is a big one, friends, is that um, part of the way, I'm going to read you something in a second to end, part of the way in which we are able to connect with that loving awareness is by withdrawing from being a part of the sen- of the sensual world. Right? It doesn't mean that the sensual world is bad and we don't like make it bad and wrong, like taking that more extreme path of suffering that the Buddha took. 
right? It's just that we pause sometimes in our day and we remember who we are. We invite that in. Um, and then dharna, which is concentration, dhyana, which is meditation, concentration you might notice is in both lists, and then samadhi, which is contemplation, absorption, or supraconsciousness, right, where we reach that state of bliss and full understanding of who we are. Um, and what I love about this list is that it is more traditional practice that helps us to be able to get access to that grace of perhaps the goddess stepping out of the way for a moment so that we could see. So it's a way to sort of till the fields of our heart to prepare it for grace. And then here's the big one, friends, is that we're not in charge. We talked about this at the very beginning of class in that meditation. It is that there's all of these things, (laughs) all of these lists and eightfold paths And yet, it is still by the grace of the goddess stepping out of the way that we feel our connection. And the more we try and do and get, right? Um, And that would be, if we're talking about the two paths to suffering, right? There's the wanting to acquire and to hold on and to attach. And this can happen, it happens so often in our practice because we get afraid. We get afraid that it's not working. Um, Or in our lives, if you're thinking about your life as practice, we get afraid that it's not working. (laughs) We get afraid that we're gonna lose something and then we won't feel safe, right? And so we try and hold and keep the same. And like all of us in the last couple of years, we know now it's been this big unfolding Right, this big revealing that groundlessness is in fact real. And then the other path towards suffering, the elevator to suffering, is how I like to think of it, is the pushing away. I don't want this. <laughs> I don't want that. It's just a dream, so it doesn't matter what I do. That's a version and that is a path to suffering. And so there's a way in which both of the li- these lists are able to hold the enormity of the paradox in which we live and remind us that our energy matters, that our relationship with one another in the world matters, that our relationship with our um, spirit matters, and that the practice matters. I had one more thing to read to you. Where is it? Mm, yes, here it is. Okay. Hmm. Here we go. The purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring merit, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance, the sure heart's release, that indeed is the object of the holy life, that is the essence, that is the goal, right? Majahima Nikaya said that, that that is the goal, that freedom. And so here's the thing, friends, is that it is an enormous leap of faith 
to trust in the middle path, to not want to operate in the extremes. It is an enormous leap of faith. I saw this cartoon this morning. It was so good on the Instagram where it was this person standing on the edge of a cliff and then there was a gigantic hand behind it um, and it was going to flick the person off the edge of the of the cliff and this hand um, was said to be God. And then there was a hand down here that was going to catch the person and then there was another arrow pointing to that hand that said also God. Right? Also God. Both are an act of grace. Getting kicked out of the nest, pushed off the cliff, and then trusting that we will be caught. Right? Trusting that we will be caught. Oh, okay. Hmm. I'm just trying to see. It says, trusting in the middle way, there is an ease of grace, a cellular knowing that we too can float in the ever-changing ocean of life that has always held us. That's Jack Cornfield. We can let ourselves open and relax right, and experience the ease of clear perception of understanding that we are both this body-mind right, and that we are connected with spirit always. Mm, I think that's it. That was a nerdtastic talk friends <laughs> um, and also I think that something that isn't talked about a lot in the yoga world and in the in the meditation world is um, we sort of idealize absorption and oneness um, and that connection feeling and I, I don't I, I just it's a place where we can get lost off the path in idealizing that that's that attachment, like wanting to keep and hold. And clear perception is being able to be adult enough to be able to hold it all, to be able to hold the paradox. Ultimate adulting, my friend and I say. Okay, so come over to your mats. Um, we're going to start, what are we starting in? I don't know. Come on over if you're not there.